When the devil is too busy and death a bit too much, they call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm misfortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, any way it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit. I'm the pestle in your shoe. I'm the bee beneath your bed. I'm a bump on every head. I'm the pill on which you slip. I'm a pin in every head. I'm the thorn in your side. Makes you wiggle and ride. Tipses have to be I do it all because I'm evil And I do it all for free Your tears are all the pay I'll ever need All right, ladies and gentlemen Hello and welcome to another edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy I am your host, your authority on evil, Mr. Robert Winfrey Again, thank you for joining us live, download, however you choose to do it. I'm glad you clicked that button. I'm glad you're listening in. If you like the show, tell two friends, tell two friends. It's a pyramid scheme. That's what this is, folks, but with no money made by anyone. I'm not quite sure what that is other than some form of government. All right. Bad jokes aside, here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, we are continuing to slog through comic book villains. That's right. It's been many weeks running. It'll be many more weeks going forward. And I'm still just pressing on. I got nothing better to do. I will say this. Triple H, for professional wrestling fans out there, had two opportunities to be the subject of discussion here on this podcast. Uh, Both of them involved him becoming WWE World Heavyweight Champion at WrestleMania or the Raw following WrestleMania. Had he done so, the internet would have exploded for a couple of seconds. Um, And he would have got his own show. Everyone could have called in and complained about him, and we would have brought up his long, sad history and the whole nine yards. That's just what we would have done. But he didn't. He is not the champion, and so he's not going to be mentioned again until I get into wrestling villains, which I will at some point because it's topical, and it's another thing that people in my sphere seem to, be, seem to know about. But we are doing comics, and I've got a special guest again. Uh, he's kind of a regular here, and I'd like to thank him for doing so. I'd also like to thank him for coming out of his, uh, what would you call it, depression at Daniel Bryan becoming uh, the WWE World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, but Pat Mullen is here with us, so we're breaking his depression. We're talking about one of his favorite subjects. Everybody be nice to Pat. He's still in mourning because professional wrestling is dead, right? And there came a day unlike any other. All right, so how you doing today, Pat? Are you, uh, is the gun still at your head, metaphorically? Uh, well, yes, but that's a plus because I took it out of my mouth. So we're, uh, we're making progress. You know, I would never go through the mouth. The odds of actually causing enough trauma to end your life are too small. Well, I angled it upward so it would go to the brain. I'm just saying, you know, if you're going to use a gun, don't go through the mouth. The, uh, there's enough of a chance that you will not do the job properly that it's not worth the risk. Nah, I should probably look into a DNR then. I don't even mean like that. I just mean like you blow half your face off and you survive just fine. 
You just now. Oh are, no! No way do I want to go through life looking like. Yeah, no way do I want to go through life looking like Mary Joe Botafuco. <laughs> All right. Uh, random jokes aside, and our commentary on professional wrestling aside, uh, when I started comics, when I started doing, announced I was doing comic book characters, and that was going to be a long, ongoing series. I had requests. People said, you will have me on this for this show, or I will be angry. I will never forgive you. I will find you in the middle of Utah and exact horrifying vengeance. And you said that about Thor. And you've long, it's long known that you, Thor's, isn't he your favorite comic book character, series, franchise, etc.? Oh, by far. How did you arrive at that? I'm just curious. <laughs> you know... Thor was my dad's favorite comic book. And when I was growing up, most of what I read was Marvel, and most of what I read was geared towards his taste. So I read Thor, I read Captain America, I read the Fantastic Four. Uh, and initially I was a big fan of the Captain America books, because at the time I thought they were just, you know, the best ones out there with the best stories. But, you know, after a while I got to get some old Thor stuff, and really what hooked me more than anything was the Walt Simonson run in the 80s, which was just to still, to me, the best comic storytelling on any single character by one writer and slash artist uh, by far. And he took villains that were maligned and made them interesting. He created uh, a great new adversary. And he really kind of took you in-depth with Thor, which a lot of people don't often do. They just kind of have you... He runs in, does the Shakespearean speech, and bashes people with a hammer, which is fun, but there's got to be more to him than that, considering he's several millennia old and happens to be an actual Norse deity and has seen worlds of people most people only dream of. And he's going to come across some baddies in that time. And I thought that run was just so good that when I finally saw other writers start to explore that a little more, like Dan Jurgens, who had a great run, and most recently uh, in, in the uh, storyline that featured the creation of Gore the God Butcher, who we may get to, by Jason Aaron, and the J. Michael Straczynski series, they were all just fantastic and really showed you the potential of his character and a lot of the potential of his adversaries. Yeah, he's the, uh, you know, that's one of the things about Thor is he's not one of these uh, heroes that is kind of based on Earth. I mean, he lives there more or less. That's kind of his base of operations. But it's rare that you see certain heroes like Batman or Superman to some extent, uh, Iron Man, you know, by and large, they kind of stick with Earth and problems related to Earth. There are a couple that will go anywhere across, you know, untold, you know, millions of light years and through dimensions. And, you, you know, the Fantastic Four kind of does that. Green Lantern kind of does that. And I don't think anybody does it to quite the extent that Thor does. And that just opens up all kinds of fun possibilities for what he encounters. And... I suppose kind of the irony is that one of his most fa well, most famous at this point, his most famous villain opposing forces, actually his brother, half-brother, uh, Loki. And you don't have to be Shakespeare to appreciate that kind of irony. I think anyone who's grown up with a sibling, be it older or younger, knows that no matter what, there's always a somewhat adversarial relationship between you who do your parents like better, who's in first in line for this, who gets this. And they take it with Loki, who also just happens to be adopted, which is a whole other bag of worms, and just it really plays it to the complete hilt that you can. Well, it's actually, that's one of the things I kind of appreciated that they did with 
in the comics and in the films that they kind of go into his backstory a little bit because before I before I you know was aware of Thor as a as a you know a graphic novel a comic series I was a big fan of mythology both Greek and Norse and I uh, so I was well aware that Loki was not actually as guardian nor a god he was in traditional mythology he's a half giant who Odin swore brotherhood to yeah and, and a half wolf. To, and he proceeds to use that to get into and out of all kinds of trouble. Uh, but he's he, he's an interesting character in the sense that you can he's one of those guys who you can kind of see where he's coming from. I mean, whether you agree or not, his motivation makes sense. It's logical, uh, consistent character development. Yeah, and in, in the comic books and the film really does a good job of bringing this out to the masses because some people who read the comics even had no idea. Loki was rescued as this child by Odin who had waged war with the Frost Giants, marched into their home of Jotunheim, and just wrecked house, and then found this baby who he knew to be the son of the king of the Frost Giants at the time, Laufey, and wanted to use him as a bargaining piece in the future to bring about peace between the city of Asgard amidst the realm of Asgard and Jotunheim, in the area occupied by the frost giants as opposed to the actual giants. And when you find out that it's not necessarily that you're, that they took you in out of mercy or a a parental instinct, but you were going to be kind of a bargaining chip your whole life. You were never in line for this throne that's held by your father. It was always about your brother. You kind of get a little bit angry and you will develop a complex at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, under any circumstances, that particular set of circumstances engenders, you know, various degrees of mental unhealth. And when you factor in Asgardian powers, magic, lifespan, ego, and all, it just, it, you just exacerbate everything. And uh, it doesn't end well, and it very infrequently ends well for Loki. Although apparently in the last movie, he is now on the throne for what I have to assume is going to last until the next Thor movie. Could be earlier, could be sooner. Well, it could be. So that kind of brings up, what did you think of... Now, I was not the biggest fan of the comics uh, when I read a few of them. And for me, it was just kind of the language barrier, which is odd because I really enjoy reading Shakespeare. But just I had a little bit of trouble really getting into it, and... But I went and saw the the movie because I was really interested. I I know a fair amount about the mythology uh, from like a research standpoint. And you know, to be up there acting opposite Anthony Hopkins and to steal the spotlight at times, you know, I just I can't say enough good things about uh, Tom Hiddleston. So, did that work for you? I mean, are, you've been known to be in the minority from time to time, as have I on various issues. Uh, did you enjoy his portrayal of Loki or? Was there something you found lacking, some other guy you would have preferred to see do it? No, I, I absolutely love Tom Hiddleston as Loki. I think he's arguably, along with Robert Downey Jr., the acting high point of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It, he really takes the, the best moments throughout Loki's printed run. And there are guys who had a much better handle on a much better handle on how to use Loki than others in terms of the guys who've written the comic. And, again, I'll point to guys like Walt Simonson, J. Michael Straczynski in those, you know, instances. 
And it's it's very much like Hiddleston only took inspiration from those and was able to block out any time that Loki just was not written well or written very against characters that his character that you'd come to know and appreciate. And he just knocked it out of the park. I mean, I maintain that the best parts of any of either of the Thor movies, and I would even go so far as to by and large include the Avengers in this. The best moments in those films are when Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston are getting to act opposite each other, and the way they can play off of each other is just it, it's awesome. It's a great dynamic that they've managed to kind of capture between the two of them. And, and not to go off on kind of like a side tangent, but that that. Their chemistry shows you what you can do when you're willing to work together for this common goal, and there's no ego involved, which is ironic because each of the guys they're playing are known to have a little bit of an ego in their own right. But they're so good at doing this and putting aside anything because they know the better each of them are, the better the overall product is, and the better off they both are, that it winds up probably being the most fun. And it's not necessarily the the best overall. You know, that's certainly an opinionated question. But I never have more fun during those movies watching two characters interact than I do with those two. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I there's plenty to enjoy about both about all three of those movies. And again, The Avengers is kind of an independent beast. I mean, it's the culmination of a couple of years of cinematic building, and it's I mean, as Mark Radlich has pointed out, he doesn't view it as a film in the traditional sense. And I can understand where he's coming from at that point. And there's plenty to enjoy about it, but something about when those two are able to be on screen together is just... It's uh, it's uncanny, and it's just so much fun. So do you have a favorite Loki moment, uh, comics or film, that you want to... that you feel just... If you were to introduce someone to the character, and you had this, you know, two pages or this three-minute scene or whatnot, is there anything that you feel kind of encapsulates the character? I think the best overall depiction of Loki that you'll see is from a storyline called Acts of Vengeance. That It was one of the first major crossovers that spanned several titles that either Marvel or DC had attempted, and obviously this was done by Marvel. Acts of Vengeance saw a union underneath the guise of a stranger who reached out to kind of all the major player villains at the time. He reached out to Doctor Doom, Magneto, the Red Skull, the Mandarin, the Kingpin, and he convinces them that their problem, why they've never been able to actually win their fights against their adversaries is because they're too familiar and what they need to do is switch things up. And the guy manipulating the events is, of course, Loki. And his goal during this is to kind of go back in time almost and erase what he did by forming the Avengers. And so he gets these arch villains, these master villains, to agree to switch opponents off. So you have things like, Doctor Doom encountering the Punisher, the Mandarin facing the X-Men, uh, and, and weird mix-ups of that nature. He engineers a jailbreak at the vault so that these, you know, the henchman-level villains are able to provide an army for these guys he's put into place. But again, this is Loki in all of his glory because it's still going back to his rivalry with his brother, which is how the Avengers were formed. It's him trying to undo something he did that bit him on the behind, which is a recurring thing that Loki does, by trying to break the Avengers apart in the chaos. And it shows when Loki's at his best, when he's the master manipulator behind the scenes. 
he's and and this is in an instance where he's taking you know some convict and giving them magical powers just to annoy his brother. He's taking major players and uniting them for the most part under his watch and following his orders. And that's the the beauty of Loki is that he's always at his best when he's the puppet master sitting back and watching and admiring his own work. Yeah, he's... You, you hit the nail on the head there. When he's able to just kind of be the you know the shadow in the darkness, the man behind the throne, it's whatever, he's so much more interesting than when he has to necessarily be on the front lines. Which is not to say he can't have fun there, too. I mean, what, I still get a kick out of the fact that he's able to fool people with magical illusions of himself. And, I mean, that's one of my, again, from the Avengers, when he tricks Thor into jumping into the cage made for the Hulk. He jumps through the illusion. He comes walking around the side and looks at Thor and goes, are you ever not going to fall for that? And it's just, you know, it's not just the perfect kind of arrogant thing to say, but it makes sense considering, you know, that these two have grown up together, given their history, that he's probably fallen for that multiple times and he just, and Loki's just never going to let him forget it. Including apparently falling for it again at the end of the second one. Yeah, and and Loki Loki has certain characteristics. Like we 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 said, you know, he's he's kind of a villain maker, and that he creates situations really just out of his own amusement to annoy his brother. And that's how we got kind of the the lesser members of Thor's rogues gallery, who are kind of just guys he just beats up, like the Wrecking Crew, who was a villain that started with the villain the Wrecker. And what Loki did was gave him an enchanted crowbar to fight Thor's hammer with. He created the Absorbing Man, a guy named Crusher Creel, who was a convict, and Loki gave him the ability to touch and absorb the physical properties of whatever he touched and engage in a fight with that. And uh, he, he's come up and he's manipulated other villains who are already around, but just got into his cause. And he's gone so far as to manipulate the big bads of the Marvel Universe and just did it, again, to, for his own ends and own means. And He's such a great character because it's it's not as though he deliberately does this because he enjoys it. He does it really because he has to. He's He is the god of mischief. There is just a tick inside of him that no matter what he does, he will never overcome because he has a role to play in their grand scheme of things. And that's what it is. He's there to cause mischief and chaos and bother people and annoy them and just ultimately upset things. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, like you said, he almost can't help it. And if you get into the, if you actually get into the mythology of it, right, he's the one who, if anyone who knows Norse mythology, he's responsible for the death of Balder, which is kind of a big deal. And it winds up going that way simply because, you know, there's a prophecy that comes down that there's going to, uh, you know, Balder's going to die. So, ba- and everyone loves Balder, except Loki apparently. So. Balder's mother goes to every creature, every mineral, every plant, every and everything, and extracts a solemn vow from them that they will not hurt Balder. Which manifests itself in humorous ways, because after she's gone through all this effort, and now he can't be harmed by anything, the Norse gods celebrate by standing him up and throwing stuff at him, which can't hurt him because of, again, spiritual vow. It's mythology, folks. I didn't write it. But nothing can hurt him, and Loki talks with his mother and says, so you got, he takes on the guise of someone else, an old woman, goes to her and says, so you talked with everyone, huh? 
And she goes, yeah, everything except uh, mistletoe. At which point he gets an arrow fashioned out of mistletoe and convinces the blind god, uh, I forget who, he convinces a blind god to shoot this arrow at Balder. Because I, I believe it's Hermit. I could be wrong. I, I think you're right. That sounds right. His name just escaped me. And he proceeds to throw this spear made of mistletoe wood, and it kills Balder, and everyone is sad, and they wind up chaining Loki to the rocks underground, and that's where he remains until Ragnarok comes, and that's strict mythology. And But just the point there being, she almost like, te- it was tempting face, like, okay, I'm going to get everything, and Loki just looked, you know, you didn't get everything, and now I'm compelled to do something with it. And it's a really kind of almost sad character trait, because you see, on the occasion that he tries to do good or is unselfish, he's just such a powerful force. That if you were on the side of good, you can just imagine what he would accomplish. I mean, it wouldn't be nearly as fun, mind you, but that's not the point. <laughs> he could just be a, a force for good, and he winds up being the opposite. Yeah, and he, just to give you an example, during the, the storyline Siege, where Norman Osborn decides to raise Asgard in the world because he's nearing the end of his rope and decides he has to make a grand move to try to set things his way, uh, Loki manipulated those events, too, by a large extent. And when he sees what's actually going on and realizing how much destruction he's causing and what the potential for for the worst is, he sacrifices himself and uses the Norn Stones of Legend to empower the heroes so they have a fighting chance. And by doing that, he ultimately gives them enough ammunition to win and beat Osborn and his forces and does so at the cost of what's, what appears at the time to be his life. See, isn't it the Void because, that winds up killing him? Yeah. And there's, you know, that's a whole other can of worms, because essentially we hate <laughs> yes. for all the wrong reasons. Yes, but, yes. Yeah, but he ends up, the Void, who is the dark persona of the century, winds up being the one who kills Loki. And that just enrages Thor, who's not enchanted by the Nornstones into the fight with the century. And Thor eventually just keeps lamenting over the loss of his brother because anybody who has a sibling will understand this. No matter what they do or screw up or how bad you dislike them, nobody's allowed to do anything to them but you because it's your brother or it's your sister. And that's kind of the the root matter of the relationship in a lot of ways between Thor and Loki. And you see that played out in the Avengers too where – you know, Iron Man and Captain America and S.H.I.E.L.D. have Loki in custody in their jet, and Thor's like, well, this ain't happening. He's my brother. He's coming with me. Yeah. And he, I mean, he even stands up for him uh, when they're on the helicarrier, and everyone's mentioning all the, you know, the things he's done, and Thor kind of, you know, watch your, you know, watch yourself. Thor, you know, Loki, he may not, you know, he may be a little off, but he's still Asgardian. He's still my brother. And it's you know, it's a really interesting relationship that those two have. But you brought up a couple of the uh, lesser ones, and we may as well kind of hit those since we've brought them up already, in the form of the Wrecking Crew and the Absorbing Man. And these are, you know, admittedly lesser entries into the rogues gallery. We're kind of on the B team here, if not C, to, when you get into some of the other members of the Wrecking Crew. But So uh, just, you know, kind of your th- – uh, well, as far as the Wrecking Crew goes, isn't uh, the Wrecker, the guy with the crowbar, he's the only one who's, like, actually Asgardian enchanted. And, again, Loki just gave him the crowbar because, hey, look, magic crowbar. It'll fight the hammer, right? 
<laughs> yeah, and what ended up happening was the the wrecker was the original member of you know before there was a wrecking crew there was the wrecker, and what happened was he had he, as we said he was given this enchanted weapon by Loki in order to combat Thor this enchanted crowbar, and he you know he basically was a, a felon and an armed robber prior to this using the alias and name of the wrecker. Uh, Loki got knocked out by him and put on Loki and Loki's hel- put on Loki's helmet and the helmet itself gets enchanted by Carnilla, Queen of the Norns, and it was meant for Loki and he now gets super strength and stamina which allows him to fight against Thor. And Loki just ends up manipulating him over and over again and what happened was he ended up taking this enchantment and found a way to share it with three of his buddies who he used to work construction with. And what happened was he, he kind of just, I think they, they, they didn't write it well. I think it was something like they, they struck the crowbar with lightning and it would allowed him to share it with who would become his three partners. Thunderball who carries a big old wrecking ball on a chain. Bulldozer who as his name implies runs at things and knocks them down. And pile driver who's just a really strong guy who likes to pound things. Who is also banned in WWE right now. And Lucha Libre. <laughs> really? Everyone's banning the pile driver. Jeez. Yeah, it's a big no-no in Mexico. You get fined by the Athletic Commission if you do it. Alrighty. But yeah, there's them. And then there's the Absorbing Man who you brought up. That's who... Nick Nolte, come next, on. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just... Hey, I Let's can annoy almost. That. I can I can annoy almost any comic book fan on the planet by bringing up Ang Lee's version Hulk. And, and I like the movie for the most part, but uh, their version of the Absorbing Man and his powers was not good. It, I mean, no. it was hokey in the extreme. And Nick Nolte's a fine actor, but hey, look, I can uh, turn into uh, no. It was just a poorly conceived and executed version of that character. Which yeah, is kind of sad because Absorbing Man makes a pretty decent Hulk foe since he just absorbs Hulk's yeah. power and Hulk just gets madder. Yeah, and in a lot of ways he's he's arguably the best human adversary that Thor has because he's been around for so long because he always poses a serious threat due to his abilities. Crusher Creel is a guy who is an ex-con, just wants to break out. Loki uses him as a pawn and enchants him to get a power where he's able to touch something and absorb its physical properties and use them. And Jesse Starcher playing the home game has reminded us of the awful Nick Nolte version. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, but <laughs> Behold the CGI. The, some of the writers have actually really explored kind of the, the length at which Creed, uh, Creel's powers can go. And they've had him do things like Absorb, absorb, you know, the properties of Thor's hammer to use against him, which is a huge thing. Thor's fighting his own power. Uh, And there's the great comic cover of, I believe it's the Absorbing Man's first appearance, where he's swinging his wrecking ball, Thor's swinging his hammer into the wrecking ball, and it's the title, I believe, is The Harder I Fight, The Faster I Die, which was outstanding and one of the, the gems of the Lee Kirby era. But he, because he's so powerful, it, it always poses a threat, 
And when he's paired off with a Loki, it makes it even greater because now there's a brain to guide that, you know, very powerful body. Yeah, my, uh, yeah, I'm not as up on the comics as a lot of other people. Um, my primary memory of the Absorbing Man and the and absorbing some of the powers of Mjolnir actually comes from the uh, comic, the cartoon uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and he absorbs power from Mjolnir and. A bit later, he's seen kind of wailing on Thor, and he's saying, why aren't you fighting back? And Thor's like, I'm concentrating. At which point he then is able to control the Absorbing Man, because the power of Mjolnir is only of his Thor's to control, not anyone else's. And he then hurls him across the planet, something like that. Yeah, straight out of Gamma World. Uh, but uh, that was a pretty decent per- portrayal of the Absorbing Man, I thought, and kind of how dangerous he can be. And Again, like any character, it's all about what writers you have, you know, manipulating this character. And when he's used right, he makes for a great villain because he's that big physical presence that can actually threaten Thor and do a lot of damage. Yeah, and like you mentioned, as far as humans go, human threats to Thor, given his Asgardian heritage and everything, it's it's kind of a short list, and he... You know, if he was a, you know, like I said, when he's paired with Loki or someone with a brain, then it's, it's about to get real because you pair that kind of brawn with an intelligence and you've got something going. Uh, um, okay, since we've we talked about Loki, who was in both Thor movies, let's just go ahead and hit the kind of the major villain, I suppose you could say, from uh, Thor 2, The Dark World, and that's um, the Dark Elves, in particular Malekith and one of the cursed, that's cursed with a K to differentiate them from the others of the Dark Elf race. Uh, who was it? Christopher Eccleston, who was Malekith? Too much yes. makeup on for him to for me to recognize off the top of my head. Um, you know, that's it. I felt that was an interesting uh, story played out in the movie. Is that... You know, where does that come from in the comics? Or was that, an, that was just an amalgamation? Or how did that come about? Because I have no knowledge of that on that particular subject. Well, Malekith, for uh, for a lot of ways, is similar to his comic portrayal. His motives are different. Um, Malekith is introduced into the series in the 80s by Walt Simonson. Uh, and what he does is he strikes a deal with Loki, and, and he does so as an emissary of Surtur, who I'm sure we'll get to at a certain point fairly soon. Oh, yes. And what happens is, Malekith kills the guardian of the casket of ancient winters, which is the artifact that Loki has in the first movie. And since they used it in that movie, they couldn't redo it in the second movie, so they changed it to the movie-originated Ether. And one of the, one of the Infinity Gems, right? Of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> so Malekith causes this distraction by doing that. He uses Thor's girlfriend as bait and fights Thor to battle his follower, Algrim the Strong, who in the movie becomes cursed. Now, Algrim in the movie is different than Algrim in the comics because they couldn't incorporate his true origin. In the comic books, Algrim becomes the being cursed due to the machinations of the character the Beyonder, who is responsible for the Secret War storyline and just really would not have fit into what they're trying to do. Um... They're having a tough in time doing comic- Thanos properly, so let's not get into the Beyonder. Yeah, in in the comics, the abilities Curse has, and you know we're going off a little bit on Curse, but he's a, he's a he's a pretty essential part of Malekith's introduction. 
because of the augmentation by the Beyonder, he was originally kind of a close match in physical strength and prowess to Thor. Then the Beyonder decides, I'm going to double Thor's strength in this guy. And, you know, to the heck of it, let's make it four times as strong. He got armor that made him almost totally invulnerable. But like all the Dark Elves, he's still vulnerable to iron. And that's the big Achilles heel of the Dark Elf race. Malekith is a very powerful magical entity who kind of, he's almost as good at, at doing what Loki does, just just a little bit behind him. It's like, the best analogy I can make is for wrestling fans who are a large percentage of our audience, if you couldn't book Terry Funks to wrestle your show, you booked Dick Slater. Because Dick Slater could do everything that Terry Funk could do, do it spot on, and do and entertain people, but the thing is, it wasn't Terry Funk; it was Dick Slater, and that's kind of where Malekith is. Malekith is a manipulator, just like Loki. He relies heavily on magic, and he's actually around in the comics now. And what he's doing is collecting the rings of the Mandarin, which should make for something interesting. But Malekith, his biggest thing that he's accomplished so far was he destroyed the Casket of Ancient Winters pretty much bringing about an ice age on Earth and almost destroyed the planet. But Thor, of course, being Thor, was able to stop the scheme in play and beat him and punish him. But now Malekith's portrayal in the movie was good. I, I just wish they kind of would have given him a little more depth because they made him menacing and you weren't always convinced as to why. Yeah, uh, I can see that. And... Uh... And Chris, well, Christopher Eccleston's a fine actor. He did a good job, as far as that goes. I mean, they wound up he wound up having a heavy, kind of a heavy prosthetic job. And didn't they alter his voice? I, I think it was somehow digitally enhanced. Or I, oh, without I might, a doubt. Okay. It just didn't sound like he had in the past. I mean, there were just you know tonal qualities that you can't make as a human that you want that you have to do through some some form of digital manipulation. But, you know, you brought up Surtur, and, you know, let's go ahead and tackle him right now, then, and... Okay, a little discourse on Norse mythology. Um, Surtur was, like, king of the fire giants, and in Norse mythology, there are different giants. You have fire giants, ice giants, hill giants. Oh, there might have been a fourth, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And of all of them, fire giants are kind of the nastiest. And Surtur was their king. He's like the ancient force that has always kind of opposed Odin. And he's actually the one who, I believe Odin dies fighting, is destined to die fighting during Ragnarok. I Don't hold me to that, though, anybody out there. But he's a big deal. I mean, he's actually the, um, I forget the terminology, but he's the, uh, now I'm going to feel really stupid because I, uh, he's the symbol for the uh, pagan, mo- the motorcycle club, the Pagans, who are, uh, last I checked, at least they're a North uh, northeastern outlaw motorcycle gang, club, gang, terminology. The second but, biggest in the area. Yeah, and he's, you know, so there's a, you know, that's a pretty substantial, you know, there's a lot of history there, and then you bring him into the comics, and he's got a, you know, he's still a big deal, but, yeah, so how does he, uh, how does he play in the comics? And I hope we get to see him on screen at some point because, again, Surtur, he's awesome. But so, uh, you know, how's, they, he, how's he play for you? 
Well, in Norse mythology, the big deal with Surtur is Surtur is the one who's fated to swing his flaming sword across the nine realms and and the universe as it is. And in the Thor comic mythology, in Marvel Comics, they tell him that he's waiting for the... They say that he's waiting at the end of time where he can kill men and gods. And you find out that he has a big rivalry with Odin because Odin at one point imprisoned him inside the earth after Odin allied himself with trolls and he just forms this grudge against Odin for that affront to him as he sees it. He's first brought out by Loki, who wants to usurp Odin and, of course, take over the throne. And he invades Earth with another giant, a storm giant named Skag. And so Odin, Thor, and Balder have to battle them. And what they, Odin does using his power is he stops time and basically kind of gets every person on the earth off of it and puts them into like a little pocket dimension. Basically, he, he can do anything he wants against seemingly anybody with the exception of whoever carries the Odin force, which is the only real way to combat Surtur. He flings Thor away as though he's nothing, does the same thing to Balder. And until Thor is able to, to use Odin's sword, he really has no answer for what Surtur can do to him. And he uses the sword to trap him on a meteorite where it's Odin uses particles on it to send him into another galaxy. Surtur really gets, you know, portrayed as the big deal that he is again by who else? Well, Simonson, the, you know, the guy who really made for the book that it's become. And, he has the blade, which is called Twilight, that he uses to that he's eventually fated to use to destroy the universe. And he's gonna fulfill the prophecy while Loki takes control of the throne for a short time. Uh, what happens is Loki realizes that oh wait, he's gonna end the world that I rule right now. So he has to ponder: is it better to be king and die, or do I want another shot at this without this happening? So Loki eventually sides with Thor and Odin when Odin makes his return. And Odin winds up absorbing Surtur because he can't figure out what else to do with him. Surtur eventually gains enough power to rebuild his physical body. And he just starts wrecking Asgard until the big moment when Thor, who's taken on the Odin force, banishes Surtur into something called the Sea of Eternal Night, where he just... Has, wasn't seen for years afterwards. Yeah, that he's a pretty big deal. I mean, and I really kind of hope that they, in the next Thor movie, assuming there is one, that they bring him out and kind of let him around to play because he's, you know, I don't want to say he's the last. He's great. Armageddon. He is. He's the end of the world. I mean, he shows up and, uh, you know. His his stated purpose, his existence, is there so that he can end life as it exists in the universe. I mean, kind of hard to get bigger than that. He, he's, he's the literal representation of Armageddon, as originally told by the Prodeta, and into the Marvel Comics, you know, universe. He he he's it. He's going to end the world at some point, as he stated to, and even the way he's he's visualized by the artist. He's over a thousand feet tall. 
he can do pretty much whatever he wants. There's there's nobody other than, you know, getting into real, real cosmic levels of power that can even stand up to him, let alone try to combat what he's doing. He's 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 as big bad as big bad gets. Well, maybe the uh, yeah. I'm almost kind of sad that they're gonna wind up going. Indications are that Thanos will be the third Avengers movie because you could do him, and that would be awesome. But you've introduced Thanos, you got to get to him. And uh, yeah, I know Thanos is kind of a. Uh, he's more than just any one. He's, you know, he's a threat to the entire Marvel Universe as opposed to one, you know, hero in particular. But Thor's the only guy who's kind of solo gone up against him with any appreciable degree of success. I mean, everyone else, it winds up being, well, we have to team up and there has to be, you know, no one-on-one guy can stand up to Thanos with the possible exception of Thor under the proper circumstances. And, you know, I mean... So, you know, how's, I mean, since we're going to get Thanos to one degree or another in the few of the upcoming Marvel films, let's go ahead and tackle, you know, the big purple uh, Titan. You know, the best portrayal of a Thor-Thanos matchup was probably done by Dan Jurgens in the second volume of Thor. Um, and it's it's kind of... It's kind of tough to match them up properly because there's never been a circumstance where they're on an even setting when it comes to power. The first time they're really portrayed as going up against each other, Thanos, of course, has taken control of the Infinity Gems. And Thor is at arguably his all-time weakest because he's in the version that where he shared a body with Eric Masterson as opposed to the actual essence of Thor and his being. It was Eric Masterson who gained a certain level of Thor's powers, but not all of them. You go a little bit later on when Thor is his, his regular self again, and he's been stricken with Warrior's Madness, which increases his power to a startling degree. And what happens is he beats up the entire Infinity Watch. He beats up the Silver Surfer. Thanos has to make an alliance with them to try to stop him from destroying everything in his path and puts him in kind of a stasis field. And he's holding the power gem at the time, as opposed to all of them. But even he acknowledges in that storyline, which I believe is called Blood and Thunder, that as soon as Thor gets out, it's a problem, because he doesn't know if he's going to be able to take him. And then you go further into the Dan Jurgen storyline, and Thor really unleashes things he's never had to do to an opponent when fighting what's perceived to be Thanos, using things such as the God Blast, which is the highest power non-lethal weapon he can fire from his hammer that he uses his hammer as a focal point to concentrate and destroy with. The only thing he stops short of using is something called the, uh, the, the, uh, what is it? The anti-force, I believe is the name of it, where he can destroy whatever in his path with it. If he unleashes its full potential. So it's, it's always been interesting because there's always been some kind of extenuating circumstance and, Comic one-on-one fights is the biggest debate within comics. Who takes who? Does this guy beat that guy? Who ends up? And Thor and Thanos is always going to be one of those fights that people will debate until we actually see it happen on even terms. Uh, Neither guys beat the other clean. That's kind of what you're saying. It's always ended in a disqualification, a countout, or somebody runs in and interferes with a foreign object to put the other guy over. Uh, 
Okay, now just as a brief to anyone who doesn't, I have a hard time imagining if you're listening to this, you're not terribly familiar with Thanos. But Thanos is a race, is a he's a member of the Eternals, if memory serves. And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But he's afflicted he, he, with this. I, I don't. Be- I don't believe he's, he's an eternal. It may it may have been changed, but I do know that he's for he's of Titan, the 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 Titan, which is I think it's one of the moons surrounding uh, Saturn. Yeah, he may be an eternal this. because I think he, I think they've classified his brother Star Fox as an eternal, but they're never really they've been kind of ambiguous about that. Okay, uh, here it is. He's uh, born to the Eternals, but he's carrying what's called the Deviance gene. Which is why that's he what it is. Okay. That's why he looks different than the other Eternals, and he is just obsessed with death. I mean, his, to the point where his name Thanos is actually the Greek god of death. And no, it's not Hades. Hades ruled the underworld. Thanos was actually death. Well, Thanatos, if you want to get technical. So, but again, I mean, to this day. And he's day, an nihilist, which the Big Lebowski would appreciate. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam the Eagle, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, he his goal is to like court death, to woo death, and after he after he you know gets the Infinity Gems, he like wipes out half or he, the staggering uh, percentage of the population of the universe because he just wishes to impress death. Like okay, here now take half the take half of all things in the universe. It, I mean, it's it's kind of staggering when you consider the amount of destruction that he's caused. And he's appropriately nine times out of ten opposed by at least three people, because again, like Thor's the only guy who, to date, we've seen go one on one and have anything approaching success under various extenuating circumstances. And just so I'm, I'm really hoping that they'll get Thanos done properly when they finally get around to doing his Avengers movie, and what he might. How he might appear in Guardians of the Galaxy might be interesting, even though the, I'm so torn on that film. But that's a completely different podcast. Unless we, no, I don't think I don't think we can dovetail the uh, the Collector into into a Thor discussion, can we? No, and I, I think we'd be better off not doing yeah, it. Reaching too much. Reaching okay. Well, the other uh, kind of the other main one that you see portrayed a fair amount that actually the uh, MCU has not touched on yet as far as Thor villains goes, and that's uh, Amora the Enchantress. Uh, and, and don't remind me that they haven't touched on her yet. It's so disappointing. I agree. I mean, and a little... Uh, correct me. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong in any of this character biography, but she is an Asgardian who winds up uh, making a deal with Loki. He teaches her magic, and she actually becomes a very, skill, very skilled in the mystical arts. She falls in love with Thor, and he, uh, he has no interest whatsoever. And she kind of becomes, you know, I'm going to... She starts off, from what I could tell, kind of like Harley Quinn to uh, Loki's Joker, but her character and what she's able to accomplish are handled so much better that at this point in time she... Well, the second Enchantress at this point, but again, the Enchantress character is on her own a legitimate threat to Thor and pretty much anyone else she chooses to. Decide, she chooses to tangle with. Am I wrong in any of that? Feel free to correct me. No, she she's a fantastic, fantastic character. And listen, Marvel, Kevin Feige, if you're listening, cast Kate Upton to play the Enchantress in a movie. 
You really cannot go wrong with that combination. Can she act? Uh, Mora is... What's that? Is Kate Upton good for any, like, legitimate acting? Who cares? You're not... This is why she's perfect, because you will look at her and be spellbound <laughs> and not care. And that's the uh, Enchantress, and that's why it's perfect. I will defer to your judgment on that. You know, Amora, she served as kind of a thrall to Loki. She's studied under Carnilla to really master magic and kind of has a potent magic use of her own at a certain point where she really doesn't need either of them. She's a founding member of the primary Avengers nemesis group, the Masters of Evil, uh, mainly because she wants a shot at Thor. And if she's, he's not going to love her, then she's going to destroy him one way or the other. It, you can't exist without loving me. And she's a fantastic character because she's, in, this, in kind of the purest essence, exactly what a man who's not pussy-whipped will do to a woman. A woman who's used to having anything she wants from anybody at any time with this sense of entitlement, walking around like her shit doesn't stink. And the female Uriah one guy, Perfect analogy. And yet there's that one guy, which in this case would be a UFC championship if we're talking Uriah's favor, <laughs> that will always elude her and she cannot deal with that fact or accept it because it's all she wants and she can't have it so she's going to destroy it if she can't have it. And in a lot of instances, there becomes the question of what is, you know, is it more than just lust with her? Does she really love Thor? Because there's been instances where Thor's been in some deep trouble and she has abandoned her plot to save him or to aid him in a lot of instances. And even going back to the Secret Wars storyline, the Enchantress is one of the villains who's taken on to the planet Battleworld by the Beyonder to stay on the villain's side and eventually becomes the happiest person in the world because she convinces Thor, like, listen, we're not to be pawns of somebody. We're we're gods. We're above this. Let's Let's get out of here, just me and you, and we'll figure out a way to go home and avoid this whole thing. And Thor finally says, this is the sanest thing you've ever said to me. I agree. Let's work together on this, and we can do something and get home. And there's been brief moments where she's had Thor in her thrall and willingly. And probably it was in the, it was in the mid-'90s when the Thor book was really kind of not very good, and they were experimenting with a different costume every year for him and trying to tie in the mythology but screwing it up. And what happened was Thor at one point was depowered, had nothing. So the Enchantress takes him in because she's living in a very luxurious loft in Manhattan. And the two of them just wind up living together and kind of casually sleeping together. And if it's a soap opera, it's great. But but as a comic, it didn't really read all that well. And much like any hot girl who's always after one guy that she can't have, she has a willing dummy slave at all costs named the Executioner, Scourge. And poor Scourge is so smitten and so in love with the Enchantress that he's willing to do anything. And if that means getting rid of Thor, so be it, because then he doesn't have to worry about her having this affection for him, and he's still there, so she's got to choose me then at that point, right? Well, poor Scourge is, you know, a great physical equal to Thor, in many ways kind of an Asgardian absorbing man and being a physical foe. Thor does have an edge over but can still trouble, be troubled by and over the years, just does whatever Amora says. 
till finally he kind of has this realization that, wow, she really doesn't care about me. And it's during what could have been Ragnarok, there's a point where somebody has to hold back the forces of hell and Scourge volunteers to be the guy to hold them back. And in a real touching kind of moment, he sacrifices himself to the greater good. And when the Enchantress is told about what he did, she cries because she understands that she manipulated and used this guy. And deep down, she really did care about him to an extent. And it was really, really afraid. And it was, it was, it was really, really afraid of what her life was going to be like without him and didn't know what to do. And it was, it was almost touching, but not soon after she resumed her villainous ways as any villain will do and any woman will do. Listen, guys, any woman will do that. <laughs> well, I, I assume we don't have a large female listenership, so go ahead and be chauvinistic if you feel so. I don't know. <laughs> uh, doesn't she try to get him uh, brought back at one point? She she tries to strike a deal to resurrect him and at, at a great cost of herself, which is actually a fairly nice selfless act in, in some ways. Of course, the the fact that she's manipulating black magic to do it is not the nicest thing to say about her. But she's had selfless action. It, that's why it's kind of tough to classify her as solely a villain. I mean, in her initial appearances to the 60s, 70s, and into the early part of the 80s, absolutely she's a villain. She does nothing but wrong, even though she claims to love Thor. But as they developed some depth with her and used her a lot more as a character, she's kind of just almost like an obsessive female fan who doesn't know what to do with herself. Kind of just a big, a, a, like the hottest forward groupie ever. And she eventually comes close, but she never grabs that brass ring and makes Thor hers. And it's brought her into conflict with some of Thor's allies, like, of course, Sif, who is one of Thor's, you know, many lady friends. And in the midst, of course, is his wife. It's, had her go after Thor's mortal love, Jane Foster, on several occasions. And at those times, you can see the villainous nature in its full effect. But the fact that she's so devoted to the guy and is willing to kind of come back from these bad things and help him, it it almost makes you root for her a little bit that maybe one day she will walk the straight and narrow. But she's a lot more fun when she does it, and she's a terrific character. And she she could potentially, if written the right way, be a, a primary villain of a Thor movie. There's not a question in my mind about it, and I would like to see her in that role as opposed to being re- relegated to, like, a second fiddle. But either way, I just want to see her brought out into the movies, and I would particularly want to see her played by Kate Upton. Alrighty. Um, okay, the other Asgardian, I don't even know if you'd necessarily qualify this as a villain in the traditional sense, but the last thing we kind of, I kind of want to talk about as far as as guardians go, and then we'll maybe do a you know just a brief wrap up of anything else that kind of comes to mind. Um, the Destroyer, which is actually now correct me if I'm wrong, but in the comics it's just incredibly powerful and enchanted armor that has no it doesn't do anything until it is possessed or controlled by some kind of the sentient spirit of a living being which essentially makes it a weapon as opposed to a villain, and then the film turned it into a semi-thinking autonomous and kind of went from there. But, you know, anything that's as powerful as that suit of armor happens to be, it's got to be worth mentioning. Yeah, the the Destroyer, as it's 
based in the comics. What it is is it's a suit of armor built by Odin. And what it was eventually revealed to be was that Odin had built it as a as armor for himself to channel his energy into to fight the Celestials. What it was was it was it was actually hidden on Earth in what's called the Temple of Darkness in Asia. And, of course, the manipulating force behind the majority of the Destroyer's appearances has been Loki. And what happens is what Loki does is subverts humans or, or other living beings and uses them to animate the Destroyer. And the Destroyer, as its name implies, has a base, uh, almost programming, to seek and destroy and it's it's eventually going to corrupt the host unless it's like a level of real, real supreme power like an Odin who can use it without being corrupted by it and losing himself into the armor. Um, and what it is is it's it's not subject to physical fatigue. It'll use all your power at like an endless cycle to do and destroy whatever's in front of it. And the biggest power it has, which it's shown in the movies, is it can fire beams out of what are essentially its eye holes in the armor and use them to disintegrate whatever's in front of it and destroy matter. Which, if you know anything about physics, matter cannot be created or destroyed except by this thing. So it's got enough power to alter the laws of the universe. Um the armor itself doesn't have anything that you can really do to, to stop it. And when it does can corrupt the life force that's inhabiting it, it'll eventually kill its host body. So only real, real supremely strong beings have been able to stand up to it. And even, even Thor has had times where he couldn't do it alone. The destroyer at times has actually cracked Mjolnir and Thor's had to have it, repaired by mystic means he's used to try to just not even not even distract Thor this is when Loki was really on the edge and wanted to actually just kill him to have him out of the way and this was what he sought to use the destroyer eventually is considered such a useful tool that it's used to substitute as a herald of Galactus and Serbs Galactus for years as an animated power cosmic level being until Loki finally steals it, for lack of a better word. It's, it's, it's just a, a, a conduit almost for, un, for limitless power where, and it's probably the, the biggest moment the Destroyer host in terms of its use of power has ever seen. When the Celestials were going to fight the Sky Fathers, who are Odin, Zeus, they're all, all the heads of the pantheons of godhood. It's the fourth host is the big Celestial that's going to destroy them. So at the big moment, Odin channels himself into the Destroyer armor and can, absorbs all the life essence of everybody in Asgard, except for Thor, who wasn't there at the time. The Destroyer grows to about 2,000 feet draws the Odin sword, which is Odin's answer to Surtur's world-ending sword, and confronts the fourth host. And it almost beats it. 
And considering that the Celestials are unbeatable, that's pretty impressive. And that's the only time you've ever seen the Destroyer armor broken is by a fourth host of a Celestial, which says a ridiculous amount about just how powerful it is. It's not so much a villain itself as its use is villainous. And, of course, when the manipulating force behind it is usually Loki, the intent becomes very serious, and it's much more used as a as a force of destruction rather than a tool of protection. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I just reading the Wikipedia page about some of the things that the destroyer's armor has endured and persevered through. It's mind boggling when you put it, when all things are put into their proper context. Um, uh, Jesse Starcher has requested that we touch on Gore, the God butcher. And I have absolutely no knowledge of this particular entity. Uh, hadn't stumbled across it before. I assume because of that that it's a relatively new entry into the universe of Thor. So I'm gonna be kind of learning on the fly as you go through, as you kind of give me the breakdown. What's up with the with Gore the God Butcher, Pat? Gore the God Butcher was in the relaunch of Thor series, written by Jason Aaron. Uh, really great villain to finally come along in a long time. Um, Basically, Gore is an alien whose people, and specifically his immediate family, were killed during the battle of the gods on his native planet. And he just couldn't understand how beings that called themselves, you know, gods, who were supposed to be the guardians of the people, could allow this to happen. And so he dedicates his life to destroying anyone or anything labeled a god. And... He, with each god he murders, he becomes more powerful, absorbing their just godly essence into himself. And what happens is our present version of Thor knows this god butcher because a younger version of Thor had come across him and sort of defeated him, but not really. And he ends up, the, the god butcher just develops this weapon that's going to destroy any living being, god, otherwise. And Thor is just at the end of his rope. He's not sure what to do. The God Butcher is so destructive that Thor has to team up with his younger self, plucked from out of time, and his older self, who's referred to as King Thor, who very much resembles Odin and, you know, has one eye that he sacrificed for knowledge, much like Odin. He has He's missing an arm that's been replaced by one of the Destroyer's arms, and it takes three versions of Thor, one of which is in possession of the Odin Force, obviously then called the Thor Force, since he's in control of it, to take out the God Butcher and end his, his madness of killing gods. But he's the best way to say it is he's a serial killer of gods. So anybody who's a fan of your more mentally unstable, bloodthirsty, murderous characters, Mark Radlich, I'm looking at you, Jason Teasley, I'm looking at you, <laughs> this is a character who's made for their mindset but can be effective in a way that those guys can't against a being as powerful as Thor. And I don't know that we've seen the last of the God Butcher. The arc was designed to really kind of wake people up and show them how show them how Thor can react to such a being and reintroduce the series with a real you know, ink to it. And I think he's the best character that you've seen created for Thor in about 30 years. It was really a great arc. I had rated it as one of the top 
Definitely one of the top five Thor story arcs you'll ever read. And just a, a phenomenal character with a lot of potential for future badassery. Hey, I'm always down for, uh, you know, bloodthirsty serial killer maniacs. I, I enjoy, what, uh, you know, those story arcs. <laughs> hey, guess what I do in my spare time? I have a podcast called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Naturally, it would be. Um, all right. I'll, I'm going to have to look that up now because you've sold me on it, so... Um, and it took three. That's that's kind of crazy that it would take three versions of Thor, including one wielding the Thor Force. I mean, that's on. That's a, granted an amped up version, but it's but kind of the same thing as there's not the only thing that beats Superman is an alternate version of Superman. Well, you, the, Thor can't stop this guy, so we need two other Thors, and one of them supremely powerful, and then then we can do it. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna look that up when I get a. When I get a chance now, so thank you to both. I mean, you both brought it up, so thank you to Pat for enlightening me, and thank you to Jesse Starcher for the <laughs> the pretty cool picture actually that he put up there. So I'll be checking that out. Um, let's see, was there any other? Uh, there's a couple more kind of almost lighthearted ones I think that I want to get into. Are there any other serious ones that we haven't touched on, Pat? That uh, spring to your mind? We've we've gotten a real serious big bad out of the way for Thor. Um, We've kind of gone through his A-player list. There's there's Ymir the Frost Giant, who is kind of like a frozen version of Surtur, but not anywhere near as powerful and is not really portrayed as his biggest threat. Uh, Magog is probably the Magog is probably the big one that we missed, but it's really he's a powerful character because he's fueled by hate, and as long as there's hate in the universe, he has power, and he holds a forever grudge against Odin. But he's not a particularly well-written character, and he's not used well. So I kind of don't think of him as a, a real big deal. And I guess there's Ulick the Troll, who's a good physical adversary, who's almost as strong as Thor. But, again, it's kind of one of those guys who you just want to read a fun Thor beat-em-up story. Ulick is used. All right. Um, oh, the only other thing that I feel is somewhat relevant would probably be uh, Jormungandr. The Midgard Serpent. And for those of, for those of you not familiar with Norse mythology, it I believe the Jormungand Serpent is actually one of the children of Loki. He has three. He has Hela, who is half dead and rules the underworld. He has the Fenris Wolf, and he has uh, the Jormungand Serpent, which is so big it actually encircles the world, and it will be freed at when Ragnarok comes about, and it and Thor will kill each other. And that's and again, Ragnarok is the end of the world. But this giant snake and Thor kill each other, and that's how Thor's life actually comes to an end. Yeah, that's the fated cycle of Ragnarok, where the final battle between the two will see Thor finally strike a killing blow to the serpent. But having fought the serpent for so long and being exposed to the venom as much as he was, eventually what happens is he's poisoned and he collapses after taking his final steps and dies. Uh, so right off the bat, you have a reason where anytime the Midgard Serpent, your Mungan, shows up, there's a big cause for concern because of the prophecies involved. And eventually it's revealed that there's another serpent who was Odin's brother and was banished from Asgard, and he comes to wreak havoc on the earth, and Thor is fated to die. Apparently the prophecy has been written so that Thor is fated to die in battle against that serpent. 
that was part of the Fear Itself storyline, which I wasn't a tremendous fan of. It allowed, you know, some fun fights where there were alternate hammers created that took over other people, but it really wasn't very well written, and it was just an excuse to make money. So I don't really like to talk about that version of the Serpent so much as I do Yormungan, who's the Serpent of Myth and really the one that everything was based around. Yeah, it's uh, and I've I've seen it's a couple of I, a couple of the like comic covers and I mean considering the fact that this thing stretches all the way around the world, it, even then it's huge. I mean the thing is monstrous. It literally encircles the world. If you can't really get a whole lot bigger than that, and like uh, you know there was a point in time where Thor had been his body had been broken due to a curse. And he was still powerful, but his bones were brittle. So he had to wear a knightly-looking suit of armor that was a low-point costume-wise for most of his fans. But it, it did allow for a good story usage where Thor had to battle the serpent in that form. And because they had been toying around with the idea of replacement Thors in the storyline, you weren't sure if he was going to make it. Because that's a threat that the serpent possesses, and it's faded. And one thing about the... As guardians is their their fate is their everything. It's it, it's written. It will come to pass. There is no such thing as denying it or getting out of it. So you always had to be on the edge of your seat when he showed up. And again, Walt Simonson, surprise surprise, I'll reference him. He was a guy who really kind of gave even depth to the serpent, where the serpent can speak and taunts Thor about how, you know, yeah, I'm gonna go, but you know, I'm gonna get you, and that's gonna break your heart a lot more than it's gonna break mine. Well, you, you gotta love a malicious serpent. I mean, I maintain that snakes have a bad rap, by and large, uh, which is ironic considering that. I mean, for as much as uh, you know, the kind of Judeo-Christian uh, mythology symbolism, I, symbolism. I say mythology. I don't mean to insult anyone's beliefs out there, including some that fall under my category. I use it as a phrase because I believe it to be an accurate one, not as anything dismissive. Uh, the serpent is portrayed as evil. It's the symbol of Satan. It's which is actually not accurate at all, in the in the sense that snakes are also the symbols of healers and doctors. I mean, if you read the Bible, I believe Christ is referred to as a serpent. To this day, the symbol on on a uh, ambulances or for paramedics is uh, two snakes winding around the staff of Hermes, I believe. Now, if you're going to get deep into you know fun myth uh, mythological illusions, so. But by the same token, it's always fun to have one that'll just kind of snarkily and maliciously uh, snipe at you. Okay, but uh, since we're kind of the other, one of the more lighthearted—I say lighthearted—that's in some cases it's a relevant term, er, relative, relative, not relevant, relative term. Uh, Thor has kind of a fun rivalry with Hercules, <laughs> which bugs me because it should be Heracles since it's the Greek version as opposed to the Roman version, but I digress. I'm kind of a perfectionist. Blame Italian Film Studios and Steve Reeves for that. <laughs> I I will. It's for, for anyone who doesn't know, in the original Greek mythology, the character that we know as Hercules is actually named Heracles, which is a reference to his ongoing uh, issues with his with Hera, with Hera, who is Zeus's wife. And she doesn't like Hercules for a variety of reasons. And you know, initially, anyway, in Greek it's Heracles. In 
the Romans adopted it, adapted it, and it became Hercules, and that's just kind of how things have progressed. But he and Thor uh, get into it every now and then, as somewhat egomaniacal deities are wont to do, I suppose. I mean, doesn't... Uh, I think it's Hercules that has the great line about Thor hitting him so hard he landed in a place the gods forgot, which just happened to be New Jersey. Their rivalry just is fun to read every time. They've done miniseries based around it, just because the two of them... They're both gods walking around among men, but whenever they're both of them in the same place, it's inevitable that people are going to compare, and... All of a sudden, it's like, well, I'm not the alpha male to some people now. I need to, I need to fix that because if you read the mythology, they're both two of the most macho, you know, mythological figures that there's ever been. And it only makes sense that there's going to be this kind of, you know, almost like, and I, again, we'll go back to using a, ref, a wrestling reference, but when Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar befriended each other in 2003, and there would be all these skits between them with who could do more push-ups, who could chug more milk, well, you substitute push-ups for arm wrestling, and you substitute milk for mead, and you've got kind of the relationship between Thor and Herc, where they always kind of jab at each other and will eventually exchange fisticuffs at a point. But whenever it gets serious, they, they, they refer to each other as blood brothers and always have each other's back when it comes to that. Uh, when Hercules' character was killed in Marvel at the end of an event called Chaos War, uh, Thor was the speaker at his funeral uh, that the superheroes held and exchanged, uh, you know, a couple of stories about how, you know, Hercules betted this girl and he got into this girl's pants and he outdrank this guy and it had everybody laughing. And there's an issue of Avengers where it's a standalone issue, which became, was a lot more common in the past than it is today, where a bunch of older kids are in Central Park picking on a kid in a Thor T-shirt talking about how easily Hercules could beat up Thor and the little kids, you know, in tears saying, no way, you know, Thor is the best and Thor can do anything. And Hercules happens to be walking through the park with the Avengers Butler Jarvis and sees this going on. And Herc being Herc starts boasting about how, yeah, I beat up Thor. And Jarvis kind of nudges him and points to the little kid crying. And Herc, Herc realizes he's like, oh man, I can't let this go on. So Herc actually tells a story about how Thor ended up pulling his fat out of the fire to validate the little kid. And, again, you you get the feeling he wouldn't do that if he didn't respect Thor and have this begrudging rivalry with him. And reading them together, it's it's like watching a buddy cop movie with each guy just trying to out-alpha male the other. Yeah, and uh, Hercules is another interesting character, especially when you get into his mythology. But that's a different, different podcast, different stories. Um, the other... Again, pseudo kind of lighthearted rivalry that uh, Thor has is he and Ares, who again the another Greek you know, version of the Greek gods in comics. You have Ares, god of war. He and uh, you know, Ares and Thor don't especially get along either. Well, Ares initially was depicted as a villain. He was he was a, a henchman basically for Pluto, the uh, the you know god of the underworld, Herc's brother, and. Kind of, kind of a little bit confusing in the mythology that they use for Grecians and Marvel, but that's okay. But Ares was a very, a very regular threat in Thor's book, particularly when Hercules was around, and was depicted as just a guy who was all about causing, as his, you know, as his mythology implies, war, and wanted to take out Thor, who he saw as in opposition to 
the plan he was involved with. And Ares became a great character when he was written into the new Avengers series by Brian Michael Bendis and depicted as kind of your, your badass anti-hero who is taking the role almost of a Thor or a Hercules figure in the Avengers where you could argue the century filled Thor's role and Ares filled Hercules' role in that scheme of things. And when that happened, Ares eventually would cross paths with Thor from time to time when Thor came back. And not so much the fun rivalry that Thor and Hercules have, so much as you're a jerk, shut up, you're a jerk, shut up, back and forth like that. And they they would fight on the same side, but ultimately... There, you could tell there was really no like between them. This was animosity that had built up over their fights over time. And they let's let's say they they may forgive, but they won't necessarily forget. Yeah, it's yeah, and there are those kind of contentious relationships that again, what you do with as a, from a storytelling standpoint is you take a very human experience and you just amp it up to fit the characters and the setting that you're placing them in and in this case it's just kind of acrimonious uh, allies who you just you can't get along with but you wind up joining side with from time to time and you get the sense that at, eventually at some point they'll probably wind up really throwing down again and but yeah, you know, it's one of the it's a you know, it's a very human you know type of relationship in that sense. It's just amped up to meet the criteria of hey, look, we're gods in comic books. All right, uh, I think that's everything I had that I wanted to cover. Is there anything any any other ones that come to your mind? Uh, you know, serious, not so serious that we haven't touched on so far, Pat. I guess I guess real briefly we can kind of mention the Hulk in the same instance because. <laughs> We, we've seen them, you know, matched up against each other time after time throughout the years because they're looked at as physically the two strongest beings in the Marvel Universe, at least of the superhero level community. And Hulk, of course, always gets portrayed as the bad guy in these instances, particularly when he was the mindless Hulk who just rampages and stomps and smashes. And there's well, Hulk does where smash. Yeah, there, there's been instances where he's actually been portrayed as pretty villainous, where in an issue of Thor, or I actually might be the Hulk's book, I'm not positive, but it was it was, in the, it was sometime in the 80s, and they're fighting it out because the Hulk's on a rampage, and Thor sees it, and he's trying to talk him out of it, and eventually it boils down to fisticuffs. And the Hulk winds up taking a hostage, holding a woman upside down, telling the Thor he's going to rip her in half if he doesn't, you know, throw his hammer away so they can just fight with fists. And going, going even so far back as when the Hulk left the Avengers in issue number two and came back in issue three with the Submariner ready to destroy them, that was the first ever Hulk-Thor fight. And they've always kind of been portrayed as never getting to a definitive finish where either something stops them from fighting or one of them relents at the cause of the other for and without really being defeated. Like, uh Thor, Thor in the Fear Itself storyline. The Hulk is one of the beings taken over by the Seven Hammers. And he becomes, uh, I think I think he takes the name of Null, Breaker of Worlds. And while it's still technically the Hulk's persona, just evil and ramped up, he says to Thor at one point, he goes, you know, you, know, you never could beat me. And Thor goes, no, maybe I never could, but you were always just a giant pain in the ass. And hits him so hard that he goes from New York to Transylvania. 
<laughs> and not Transylvania as a joke. He literally lands in Transylvania. But they, they've always been they've always been the mega fight, kinda like your your Hulk Hogan versus your ultimate warrior of superheroes. And I, like Defenders number ten always sticks out in the Avengers Defenders War where they basically stand stalemated for an hour just trying to out wrestle the other one. And this is my one of my main points of contention whenever somebody tries to tell me that the Hulk is stronger than Thor. The Hulk gets stronger as he grows angrier or more raged or more enraged. If he's deadlocked in a stalemate for an hour by Thor, he's probably gotten pretty mad over that time. And Thor's still been able to hold him. So I always point to that as an example of why Thor is not only stronger than the Hulk, but capable of beating him if he really wanted to. You hear that, Radulich? <laughs> Let's not call out Mark. He's got his other... He can't respond. You can't poke at a That's guy exactly who's not... That's exactly why I'm doing it. Ah, don't be that guy. I am Eric Bischoff calling out Vince McMahon for slamboree. <laughs> All righty. If you insist. Um, yeah, that was the only other one I that you, I think you're correct in bringing up. Uh, those two have gone at it, and like you said, you know, it's one of those kind of crazy things where, objectively speaking, you know, um, by and large, Hulk might have more potential strength, energy, etc., just because his rage is theoretically exponential. But by the, but you know, you can't argue with results, and those two have just. They're kind of batting the big, uh, you know, 500 against each other. They're uh, the goose egg. Neither one can really get that definitive win. Uh, if you're a fan of independent pro wrestling, I suppose a couple of years ago this would be the uh, American Dragon and Nigel McGinnis feud. They constantly get up, get one up on each other in you know incremental ways, but they're just still kind of deadlocked at the end of the day. I uh, just referenced two people who Pat is like is over there cursing me for bringing up, but hey, that's how life goes sometimes. All right, uh, anything else? <laughs> um, you know, uh, Thor is one of those guys who it's kind of difficult to match up with a real great villain who can challenge him in some way. In a lot of respects, similar to Superman. The the difference being when they've brought villains who are on Superman's level, they've really had to reach for it in order to challenge him like bringing back General Zod, um, the the threat of Brainiac. But he doesn't have a lot of those physical foes who can do that. Thor is oftentimes thought of in the same way, but yet when you dig into the mythology and the characters that have been brought out, you can see a lot of them are on paper exponentially more powerful than he is. And he's still got to come up with and find ways to beat them. And I think that's one of the great things about Thor's storyline is people who don't necessarily read write Thor off as being a god, and so you can't really challenge him. It's boring. But if you go in and read the best Thor story arcs where they bring these characters out, you can see it's really the opposite of the case. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I mean, that, that was kind of the same thing that you and I ran into uh, to a, a lesser degree, mind you. But when we, because uh, prior to Man of Steel being released, you and I actually sat down on one of these and we talked about Superman's Rogues Gallery in preparation for that film coming out. And I was personally surprised when I kind of got into some of his villains that you've got some depth there. You've actually got a, 
some decent villains, and not it's not just oh you got Zod and Luther, and then everything kind of falls off. Now there's there's a there's some pretty good villains in there, and Thor's is actually I mean it's one of those rogues galleries that doesn't get as much play as maybe it should, but when you get into it, when you start looking at the characters and what they represent and what they've accomplished as villains do, it's a really strong group of bad guys that he's, uh, you know, that he's kind of racked up there that will come out and fight with him. And I will now have to look up again Gore the God Butcher storyline and uh, big ups to Benjamin J. Cologne for locating the fight between Thor and Hulk with a stalemate. And thanks to him and Jesse Starcher for kind of, for playing the home game with us and providing pretty pictures to go along with our dialogue here. We appreciate you guys. Um, I think that's everything for me then. I agree with your assessment. Um, and let me say this. The Thor films made me a big fan of the character, and I'm now looking forward to getting into some to more of the literature on that side. So, Pat, thank you very much for uh, being available to do this. Uh, I couldn't. I absolutely would not do Thor without you for this one, so thank you for that. I didn't want to have to try and find another Marvel villain last notice because I just – I was kind of set on Thor or Triple H for this week, so thank you for that. And there used to be a shocking physical similarity between the two back when Hunter had long hair. Big burly blonde with hammers. You can't go wrong. You really can't, and it, it's sad that he's not the champion. Very sad. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right. What do you got to Pat? What, what do you got to plug this week, Pat? Well, on Sunday afternoon, Gavin Napier and myself will be discussing the fallout from this weekend's two major boxing cards, one of them being the long-awaited rematch between Manny Pacquiao and Timothy Bradley, the other being the 49-year-old ageless wonder, the alien Bernard Hopkins, looking to unify two light heavyweight championships when he fights knockout artist David Shumanov on Showtime. Uh, also, you can, as always, hear me on Sunday night with our genuinely great host, Robert Winfrey, who I thank so much for having me on again, on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. We will talk fallout from this past weekend, actually tonight's Fight Night card, which features Big Nog against Big Country, and we will be previewing Wednesday's Tough Nations finale show. Because the UFC does have more than one Australian on their roster, apparently. Who knew? I didn't. Honest to God, when they announced we're doing tough, we're doing tough nations. Going to be Canada and Australia. I went. Wait a minute. You're having George Sotteropoulos on there again? They're like, no, no, Kyle Noak. Oh, all right, I'll take your word for I'm it. I'm personally not interested until they do Tough Nations, Namibia versus Djibouti. I'm down for that. I I still want to see Haiti take on the Dominican Republic. The battle for Hispaniola. Now that will draw ratings. It, I'm venturing more so than uh, Patrick Cote ever will. I, I'm sorry, I'm down on. I shouldn't be so negative about Patrick Cote. He's not. Yeah, a, yeah, you should. He's not a bad guy. Not a great yeah, fighter, bad guy and bad, bad fighter, guy. different things. Yeah, he's not a bad guy. He's not a great fighter. Uh, all right. As for my plugs, Locked in the Guillotine is live every Friday in the MMA Zone of 411Mania.com. Uh, this week, I gave my predictions for UFC Fight Night, uh, Noguera versus Nelson, which actually wound up airing really early Friday morning. I just couldn't possibly have <laughs> typed it out because I have to submit this Thursday. <laughs> so, 
you've got my preview for that. I was right about almost everything except Ramsey Nijem, who surprised me, got a win. However, had I heard beforehand that he left the pit and got with a more legitimate training camp, I might have gone the other way. Just saying. Did not have all the information. Uh, I think everything else I was right, I was perfect on, so yay me. I can toot my own horn. It's my show. Uh, I This Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern, the 411 Ground and Pound radio show is back. We did not have one last week, partially out of deference to Mark Radulich having left the show the week before, partially because WrestleMania was on and we would have actually been competing with the horrible, horrible Undertaker versus Brock Lesnar match. And the resulting shocking decision, I mean, just it would have been oddly timed. But we're back in the saddle this week, Pat's on, and we're going to break down, like he said, we're going to break down the last fight night and preview the next one. And we'll talk about news. We might make fun of Nate Diaz, because it's fun to poke fun at the mentally handicapped folks. Park in handicapped spaces while handicapped people make handicapped spaces. I am partially convinced there's something disconnected in his brain at this point in time. Josh Thompson must have kicked him harder than we could have possibly imagined. There's some tainting in the chlorine in the Diaz family gene pool. All right. Enough fun at the expense of my Diaz. Um, so you can tune in for all of that. The last edition of The Long Road to Ruin, I was guest hosting as Mark Radulich is firmly in the midst of the Jonas Exodus. He's got the different tribes. He's organizing them. They're on their way out of Egypt, folks. I can play that metaphor. Uh, Sean Comer and I talked the first three Saw movies. We expressed our undying love and appreciation for them and what they were able to accomplish. Uh, so look at that up on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network on April 22nd. That's not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday. Uh, Sean and I will be back, and we will be discussing the horrifyingly sudden fall from grace from that particular franchise. We'll be tackling Saws 4, 5, 6, and 7. The seventh one also known as Saw 3D. And you will hear ranting and raving and our profuse objections to the continued existence of various elements of that franchise. It'll be fun. We had the intellectual and adoring discussion last week. Next time around, you get the baggage. You get various profanities used in various fun ways. What everyone really tunes into that show for, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Robert Cooper has the Metal Hammer of Doom. That would be this Tuesday, I believe. Is what he's. If there's not a Long Road to Ruin, there's a Metal Hammer of Doom. They share the same day. They just go every other week. Uh, Jason Teasley holds down the sports section with here at the Radulation Broadcasting Network with From the Cheap Seats, which airs every Thursday. Uh, he, a couple of weeks ago, just wrapped up. He, he did his sports movie discussion. If you're into sports, he and Robert Cooper do a great job, have a lot of fun over there. And be sure to check out the Radulich and there, – there's several other shows that I haven't mentioned. So be sure to check out the Radulich and Broadcasting Network for all of those. Stitcher, iTunes, subscribe, rate us five stars. We love you guys for it. We appreciate feedback. And I believe that's everything. Oh, I do not have a topic picked out next week as of this moment. I Partially because I wasn't sure what – uh, if I was going to get to Triple H or Thor this week, and I had to coordinate with Pat, so I didn't plan to next week. I have loosely been going Marvel, DC, Marvel, DC. So next, which means next week I would t- tackle another DC uh, villains, ro- another DC characters, rogues gallery. So I will kind of hammer through that. 
Actually, the last edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Sean Comer was on, and he and I talked about the villains of the Green Lantern franchise. We had a lot of fun. Check that out. Check out all the versions, all the various editions of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Some are good. Some are not so good. Some are just awesome, uh, I'm assuming. There was a one show about Doctor Doom that was pretty awesome. Yes, Doctor Doom was discussed. Uh, Actually, since we mentioned the Hulk, actually, I think my second show, I had Mark on, and we talked about the Hulk, Hulk, and the third one, I had Cooper on, and we talked about the Hulk's villains. So I've been doing comic book guys for a long time, folks, off and on. A lot of villains to work with. Yeah, well, again, I had two shows. I had one where it was just the Hulk as a villain, and then we got to go through Rolk and the Absorbing Man and... Thunderbolt Ross and all that fun stuff. So go back. It's in there. You can search. Look them up. They're fun. I had fun with them. And I'm still promising to get to part two of the term, uh, my Terminator series eventually. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. All right. So that's going to wrap things up here. Thank you again, everyone, for listening uh, live or recorded. Thank you for hitting the download button. Uh, continue to support the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. We all appreciate it very much. So for Pat Mullen, who's holding down the fort on the East Coast, he is the pugilistic pontiff, and make sure to tune in, as he mentioned, to his and Gavin Napier's podcast, Talking Boxing. It's a lot of fun. Oh, just a quick question, Pat. How many times in boxing have you had a guy fight, have you had two guys fight for a vacant interim title? Because I swear I was watching something the other night and I heard that thrown out there. Uh, To put it in perspective, less than the UFC. I don't think they've ever fought for a vacant interim title. Well, generally, an interim title is is declared active when the defending champion can't make a defense. They do an interim title in boxing to determine... The way it's supposed to be where the next... It's a one-fight deal where they determine the next contender... And only in rare instances has an interim title fight resulted in a new champion, such as uh, Vitaly Klitschko retiring as the WBC heavyweight champion. And the WBC had interim title fights where eventually Samuel Peter claimed the championship. He and wound up losing it. Uh, excuse me, not Samuel Peter. Uh, wow, what am I thinking? Oleg Maskayev claimed the championship, excuse me. And then he lost it to Sam Peter, who eventually lost it back to the returning Vitaly Klitschko, who had been given champion emeritus status and allowed him to challenge for the title in his first fight back. So that's what GSP has. He's an, uh, he's an emeritus champion at this point. Uh, he should be if he's not already, but I doubt he is based on some rants we've heard. Hey, it's he, okay because he's got a burgeoning movie career. Hey, he was a, he was a better jobber than 80% of the, of the WWE's roster right now, I felt. So good on George. Uh, that's a for anyone who doesn't know. That's a reference to the second er, to Captain America: The Winter Soldier, wherein former UFC welterweight champion George St. Pierre plays Batroc the Leaper and is summarily squashed in about ninety seconds by Captain America, as he is supposed to be. It is a good All fight things, scene, though. It is. I really enjoyed that whole fight sequence. I mean, you knew who was winning, and it was kind of comical, but it was supposed to be. I enjoyed it. So good on them. For that end, good on George. Uh, you know, poor guy. Just tore his ACL again last week, his other ACL. So, speedy recovery. Continue with your career. Continue to criticize things the UFC does because apparently you have more credence than those of us on the internet with podcasts, even though we're saying essentially the same thing. But good on you, George. And Samer still loves you. Maybe that's where he got the idea. He listened to the Ground and Pound show and he's begun to understand and he's begun to carry our. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's come up with the same criticisms that we have. They rip us off for everything else. Why should that be any different? It's true. Now, hey, you know what? In the future, we'll, when they announce that Kate Upton will be Amora, we can point to you and say you called it. I called it, I engineered it, and I should get 10% <laughs> of her salary, but I will I will settle for a wink and a nod from her. <laughs> All righty. That's going to wrap us up tonight again. Thank you, everyone, for joining. For the Pugilistic Pontiff, Pat Mullen, I'm Robert Winfrey, reminding you that without good villains, all of your heroes are just weird guys in cut in tights and I can't speak, in tights and capes. Good night, everybody. So say good night to the bad guy. Insurance-minded speeches from GEICO. Hardship. My grandmother would go through it every month to pay her insurance bill. First, she would handwrite a paper check, in cursive. Then, using her own tongue, she would wet a stamp for an envelope. Today, however, we need not weary our hands and tongues. Today, we can pay our GEICO bill with the GEICO app. Away with hardship, in with bill pay on the GEICO app. Thank you.